Hi, this is Matt Fulbrook with one last bit of corporate governance dorkiness before we wrap up 2023. I'll give away the punchline up front so you can decide right now if you think it's worth your time to hang in here for 20 minutes or so. I actually don't know how long this is going to be yet. Here we go. There is no provable causal connection between good corporate governance and good corporate performance. Everyone should stop looking for one right now. Corporate governance, by its very nature, cannot be connected to corporate performance in any measurably systemic way. You should treat any argument to the contrary with deep skepticism. That's the punchline. Pretty exciting, huh? If that doesn't sound fun enough, I'll also do some light trolling of academic research on corporate governance and take a few nonsense detours along the way. I can read your mind. I know what you're thinking. I've never felt such anticipation, such excitement, and I get it. So let's dive in. Want to guess how many results come up on Google Scholar if you search for corporate governance and firm performance in quotes. Google Scholar, if you're not familiar, is super cool. It's the same as normal Google, except the results are academic papers and proceedings from academic conferences. And as you already know, when you put your Google search term in quotes, it will return results that have the exact phrase you're looking for. In this case, I'm searching for academic papers with the exact words corporate governance and firm performance in their title or somewhere else. If there are real Google nerds listening and I got some of those details wrong, I don't care. Just roll with it. Anyway, how many results? 20,100. Let me give you some flavor. I randomly skipped ahead to the 38th page of search results and there's a paper called Corporate Governance and Firm Performance in an Emerging Market, colon, Evidence from Barbados by Fillmore Elaine and Renee M. Thompson from the Journal of Corporate Law and Governance in 2019. This particular paper is a case study based on the collapse of a big insurance company that the researchers determined was caused, at least in part, by a lack of board independence, a lack of a chair-CEO split, bad committees, a lack of diversity, etc. Lots of governance stuff. And in this case, a pretty obvious performance result, aka the company died. Full disclosure, I haven't read the paper, so I have no opinion on their methodology or findings. I just want you to understand the sheer volume of academic effort put into examining the potential link between corporate governance and corporate performance. It's massive. Remember, I only searched one phrase and randomly skipped 38 pages ahead, and this is what I found. It was right on the nose. I, myself, have written some papers about corporate governance and corporate performance over the years. I remember two of them particularly clearly. I wrote one called Tracking the Relationship Between Credit Union Governance and Performance back in 2010 or so. Look that one up if you want to see a spooky-ass, weirdly shadowy picture of me from a long time ago, back before I got real haircuts. I wrote another one back in 2013 called 
the impact of family control on the share price performance of large Canadian publicly listed firms 1998 to 2012. I remember what it was like grinding the data for those papers and finding trends that were worth writing about and then writing about them, except in hindsight, I didn't have enough discipline to worry too hard about causality. Causality in two senses. First, if we assume that the trends I found could stand up to any significant outside scrutiny, questionable, which direction did the causal arrow point? As in, what was causing what? Was some governance thing causing a specific performance outcome? Was performance driving governance in some way? Was some unexamined or maybe unexaminable thing affecting both governance and performance in some way? The other question of causality is more fundamental. Could I even explain how governance might cause a measurable change in performance? Like, let's imagine I had a data set that seemed to show a causal relationship between directors wearing pink hoodies and profitability. Incidentally, I happen to be wearing a pink hoodie. It's got a weird illustration of a toucan on it with a banana for a beak. Anyway, let's imagine I had a data set that seemed to show a causal relationship between directors wearing pink hoodies and profitability, as in the number of directors in pink hoodies increases and so does the profitability of a corporation. What specifically is the story I would tell? How exactly might I suggest that the connection between hoodies and profits works? Do people become more creative when they put on a pink hoodie? More risk tolerant, more risk averse? And over what time horizon and what magnitude? Like, is the pink hoodie effect supposed to be immediate? Put on the hoodies and we should see a 4% increase in profitability in what? A month? A year? Does it work for every company? What if it doesn't? Does it just increase the probability of good performance? And if that's the case, does pink hoodies equal good governance even in the cases where financial performance is awful? These are weird and hard questions. Speaking of weird and hard questions, here's a detour and it's gonna seem like a little bit of a repeat, but you remember my last episode when I reacted annoyingly to Rolling Stone's top 500 albums of all time? When I was writing that script, I poked through another important music list. This list, in fact, tells us objectively what music is the best without any silliness like editorial opinions or feelings or artistry getting in the way. I'm talking, of course, about the best-selling albums of any given year or decade or even all time. How convenient. Okay, so your favorite album of all time is, of course, Thriller by Michael Jackson. It was the best-selling album in 1982, the year it was released, the best-selling album of the 80s, and the best-selling album of all time. Despite that, Thriller has none of your favorite songs. In fact, you're supposed to like Bing Crosby's White Christmas, most of all, and you're supposed to like Tino Rossi's Petit Papa Noel, Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas is You, Gene Autry's Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, the Band-Aid Super Collab Do They Know It's Christmas, and, of course, Bing Crosby's Silent Night, more than any song on Thriller. Even Chirpy Chirpy Cheep Cheep by Middle of the Road is better than Billie Jean or PYT. 
I mean, if you happen to like Busta Rhymes' 1996 classic album, The Coming, just wait till you hear the 5,037 albums that are better than it, but worse than Thriller, including the presumably pretty great soundtrack to the 1998 Rugrats movie, which incidentally features Busta Rhymes. Sorry, I'm done. But my point is obvious, right? Is performing well the same as being good? Are sales the performance that really matters? Are we comfortable using one or two or three objective metrics to compare a whole universe of things that are totally different from each other? Does the question of connecting corporate governance and corporate performance even make sense? <sighs> Ugh. More weird and hard questions. Before we get too hung up on them, let's take a look at a few other papers from the corporate governance and firm performance pile to see if they help at all. Let's start with corporate governance and firm performance in Iran from 2008 in the Journal of Contemporary Accounting and Economics by Bita Mashayeki and Mohammed S. Bazaz. This study found, among other things, that board size, as in the number of directors, is inversely related to firm performance. Cool. Small boards equal big performance. Eight years later, we have another paper. Corporate Governance and Firm Performance in Developing Countries, colon, Evidence from India. This is 2016. The journal is Corporate Governance. It's by Akshita Arora and Shandan Sharma. This study found, among other things, that big boards are good for firm performance. Maybe Iran and India are just different somehow. Maybe it's the eight-year gap. Maybe the methodology of the two studies was different. Maybe someone made a mistake. Who knows? Maybe we should look at something else. Okay, remember corporate governance and firm performance in Iran, 2008 Journal of Contemporary Accounting and Economics by Bita Mashayeki and Mohammed Esbazaz? They also found that boards with independent outside directors are positively related to firm performance. Nine years later, the role of corporate governance and firm performance in Indonesia, this is from the 17th Annual Conference of the Asian Academic Accounting Association in 2017, Zaro Naima and Dr. Hamida found the opposite. I guess this raises the same questions as our previous example. There have to be examples where multiple studies agree with each other, right? Of course there are. Lots of them. But you can always find other papers that disagree. But let's look at some research where the researchers were willing to take a definitive stance. Check it out. In 2008, Sanjay Bhagat and Brian Bolton wrote a paper called, you guessed it, Corporate Governance and Firm Performance. In the Journal of Corporate Finance, they found a bunch of stuff, including that stock ownership by board members is significantly positively related to firm performance. 11 years later, they wrote another paper called, appropriately, Corporate Governance and Firm Performance, colon, The Sequel. Not only did a longer observation seem to confirm their findings, but they're now so confident in the connection between director share ownership and firm performance that they encouraged other researchers to think of director share ownership as a metric of good governance because of its relationship to performance. Fair enough. Let's unpack this for a sec. When board members of a listed company own enough shares in that company for the value of those shares to be meaningful to the directors, as in they probably care a lot if the share price tanks, then the performance of that company gets better. 
The researchers in this case measured firm performance by looking at return on assets, stock return, and Tobin's Q, which is a nerdy metric of price versus book value. We can pause and imagine how this might work, right? Close your eyes. Picture yourself as a corporate director. Whatever that looks and feels like in your mind's eye works just fine. For me, it's basically the same as what you might see in a movie or TV show. I'm even wearing a super basic navy suit, except there's a friendly giant anteater snuffling around the room because he's my friend. But we're still getting good board work done. Anyway, no matter what you're picturing, let's consider two scenarios. In the first, you're just a director, consuming vast amounts of information, saying useful things when appropriate, cultivating effective conditions for you and your peers to make decisions, etc. The second scenario is the same as the first, except you also own a bunch of shares in the company that are worth $10 million right now and could be worth anywhere between $0 and infinity dollars, depending on the performance of the company. In the second scenario, you might have a lot more anxiety if the company's share price were to go down a lot, right? and also a pretty strong incentive to find ways to make the share price go up as much as possible. And one sort of reliable way for a company's share price to go up is for some really obvious operational performance metrics to look good, like the ROA that our friends from the academic paper cared about. And the board is ultimately responsible for choosing, well, everything that a corporation does. So if you had a meaningful amount of wealth at risk, you'd probably make decisions that are good for the performance of the company over whatever amount of time mattered most to you. And to make matters even more gooder, what's good for you is also good for other shareholders because when you win, they win too. Makes sense, right? Except it also raises a bunch of questions. First, why aren't all the other directors, even those without a bunch of wealth at stake, making decisions that are good for the performance of the company? Without their own money on the line, are they just like totally apathetic or incompetent or something? Is it that the directors with lots of shares get super deep into the nuts and bolts of operational performance and they just see stuff that they otherwise wouldn't? If that's the case, and that's good for performance, why are we always telling boards to stay out of operations? And do all these directors always agree with each other about what choices will squeeze out the best performance? If so, then I'm especially confused about why share ownership matters so much. Because if it's clear enough for everyone to agree, then it should be obvious with or without personal wealth at stake. Is it that these boards simply take fewer risks? As in, the likelihood of bad performance is lower because they don't try anything risky? If so, is that really what we want from our boards? Less innovation? Less experimentation? Most importantly, aren't we basically saying that it's good for directors to be self-interested as long as everyone in the room is trying to extract as much wealth for themselves all the time, then it's going to be good for the company? Except doesn't this run contrary to the lessons we're supposed to learn from literally every corporate governance catastrophe? Not to mention it feels kind of squicky, right? I don't know, man. None of these questions makes the researchers wrong, of course. It's just, I can't see how the theory translates to practice. Or, in other words, the data might seem to suggest 
that director share ownership leads to better performance, but it doesn't help us to understand what boards are supposed to do beyond just having shares. It's unsatisfying. It's incomplete. It's unhelpful. It's almost meaningless, even if it's technically true. Let me put it another way. If we insist that there should be a measurable and direct connection between good governance and good performance, then we're implying two things that are honestly kind of dumb. The first one is that the point of good governance is to always win no matter what. No matter our industry or sector or geography, no matter whether we're a tiny startup or a multi-generational, multinational giant, no matter what our purpose, we always need to be winning compared to other organizations. Because that's the only way we can study firm performance relative to other firms. It's exactly the same thing as saying that Thriller is 32% better musically than ACDC's Back in Black and Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon and 47% better than the soundtrack to the movie The Bodyguard and Michael Jackson's Bad, all of which are measurably better musically than every other album ever made. As a side note, Avril Lavigne's debut album Let Go is the 96th best-selling album of all time at 18 million copies sold. Next time we're having a cocktail, ask me about being invited to audition to be the bass player for Avril's band circa 2001-2002-ish. Anyway, what I'm saying is if we happened to make Crazy Sexy Cool by TLC or 10 by Pearl Jam or Led Zeppelin 2 or 1989 by Taylor Swift, does it mean we somehow did a worse job musically because a hundred some odd artists or albums performed better than ours? No, it's obviously an obnoxious argument. The second reason this whole thing is dumb to me just puts a fine point on the whole thing. Arguing that good governance should cause good performance is almost like saying that good governance and good performance are the same. As though good governance is a guarantee of good performance. And the researchers might argue back, Matt, you're being intentionally dickish here. What we're saying is that good governance improves the probability of good performance. And honestly, I think I agree with that statement, especially if we define good governance as intentionally cultivating effective conditions for making decisions. But one of the weird things about probability is that it's not a guarantee. And if good governance can't guarantee good performance, then we must always be cool with the fact that failure is an acceptable result of good governance, even catastrophic failure. Let me repeat, catastrophic failure is an acceptable result of good governance. Why? Because the future is uncertain. No matter what we do, we can't increase the probability of success to 100% or decrease the probability of failure to zero. No guarantees. If that seems like a hard pill to swallow, then good. Change is hard. Honestly, I think this is a really important lesson. It forces us to accept that performance isn't the entire point of good governance. This is especially funky in jurisdictions like the U.S. where a board's legal duty is to shareholders. I mean, if there's no way to guarantee an excellent return to shareholders, then it means that good governance can, when appropriate, involve high-risk experimentation that might cause shareholders pain because a lack of high-risk experimentation also might cause shareholders pain. So, 
when a board and executive team believe in good faith that now is the time to take a big swing or two or three, it might get us Sergeant Pepper, then Magical Mystery Tour, then the White Album, then ugh, Yellow Submarine, then, well, you know the rest. Yellow Submarine, by the way, is the 32nd best-selling Beatles album of all time when you include compilations and greatest hits and stuff. Before we wrap up, I made an offhand comment a minute ago about the problem with always seeking amazing performance relative to other organizations. I think this is worth a closer look for a sec. On the one hand, yeah, if our company is one of 10 in the same place selling the same thing in the same way to the same people, and we consistently perform 10th out of 10 on important metrics, that definitely suggests that something is up. What kinds of things might be up? First off, if the performance gap between number one and number 10 is like 0.1%, then we ought to just admit to ourselves that the rank is irrelevant. Every company is performing equally well or poorly, no matter their rank. Or what if your company has decided to pay its employees 60% more than the other companies, not because you expect a direct connection between compensation and operational performance, but because you think it might have an impact on happiness, which might have an impact on culture, which might have an impact on retention, which might have an impact on attracting good new people, which might have an impact on some other things, which might eventually, in some capacity, have an impact on performance. And in the meantime, it feels like the right thing to do. This extends to any number of other social factors or environmental factors or other non-financial performance objectives. What if performing 10th out of 10 is a choice? Performing 10th out of 10 suggests that your relative performance is poor, but not necessarily your objective performance. In other words, you might still be making tons of money for yourself and your shareholders. And what if that performance gap between your corporation and its peers is an indication of investment into efforts that make the world a better place? Annoying, cynical, old-school capitalism junkies might be thinking, it's not a corporation's job to care about their impact on the world. The business of business is business. The market will dictate blah, blah, blah. The thing is, nobody actually believes that nonsense. I can try to prove it by asking you some questions. Try to answer them honestly, at least to yourself. Question one. Do you like it when corporations innovate and create things that make your life better and easier? Question two. In general, does it feel good when a corporation reflects your beliefs and values? Question three. In general, do you prefer to do business with corporations that make you feel good and not do business with corporations that make you feel bad? Question four. Do you see that your answers so far suggest that you want corporations to do things that are aligned with your interests beyond just offering the best products and services at the lowest prices? Question five. Can you now imagine a scenario where you might support a corporation investing in some social or environmental effort that's aligned with your interests, even if it might not improve the corporation's financial performance? Yeah, so can I. What I'm getting at here is that three things can conceivably be true at the same time. One, a corporation's financial performance relative to its peers might be shitty. Two, that same corporation might have excellent environmental or social performance relative to its peers. And three, that same corporation might be thriving as a going concern. In a data set, 
this corporation might be in the middle of the pack or worse on the financial front. They might or might not have directors that own shares or an independent board or a big or small board size. Can we say confidently, no matter what these variables show, that the corporation has good governance or bad governance? The fact is we have no idea because governance can't be measured from results. If it could, then that would mean Enron, for example, had amazing governance and therefore amazing performance up until we learned it was a criminal enterprise and then bad governance from the second the world knew what was really going on. Anyway, you might not be 100% convinced here, and that's fine. I'm with you. The only thing I feel 100% confident about is that no matter what data set we use and no matter what questions we ask, we'll never find an ironclad connection between good corporate governance and good corporate performance. Why? Because that's not how corporate governance works. Corporate governance is groups of people making decisions under conditions of uncertainty in a massively different set of corporations with widely divergent priorities, time horizons, cultures, philosophies, and talent. If you are 100% convinced, and this feels kind of depressing to you, cheer up. Accepting that good governance can't and shouldn't be measured based on outputs or results gives us an exciting opportunity to be more thoughtful and intentional about inputs. Why exciting? Because the inputs are the part you can actually control. I've talked about this at extreme length on tons of platforms in 2023, maybe most clearly in season four of One Minute Governance. And those are my last words about corporate governance for 2023. Thanks for an awesome year and for being an important part of my journey, the only important part of my journey. Actually, if you weren't interested in what I'm up to, there'd be no reason to do it at all. So have a happy new year. If it's been a long time since you listened to Thriller, consider giving it a spin. It's even better than you remember. Tune out all the haters who pretend like the girl is mine isn't amazing. Don't skip a track. Pour a glass of bubbly something, wine, water, kombucha, whatever. Ring in the new year and send some good vibes through your community and get a couple extra hours sleep. 2024 is gonna be an important year. See you then. <laughs>